This is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I'm Rachel Ho. You don't go to the movies, do you? I don't... I don't go out that much. Is there a reason why you're asking me this? You know, maybe you had a recommendation. Anthony Clare, 3650 Rathburn Road. Hello? Uh, good afternoon. Hey. Um, no, I'm calling to speak Where to Dan. Where are you Dan. calling from? I'm, so, I'm sorry, I, th- I think there's been a misunderstanding. Who is this? Okay, I'm gonna, I'll call back later. On today's show, we are continuing our A24 retrospective. This is our eighth edition of the series. You can listen to episodes 178, Red Rocket, 176, The Spectacular Now, or go way back to 108, A History of A24 Films to get the full backstory on the company. Today we are looking at the 2013 film Enemy, directed by Denis Villeneuve. The film tells the story of a failed actor from Toronto who has intense arachnophobia and is forced to watch a movie starring Jake Gyllenhaal with pure nightmare fuel. How about them S-word creatures? Pretty scary, right Rachel? Did you say S-word? Yes, I don't like to say the actual <laughs> word because they really haunt my dreams. Are you are you like actually what is it arachnophobic? Are you actually yes. arachnophobic? Wow. Yes, I am. <laughs> That's um, funny, but not funny at all because that must be very annoying because spiders are fairly common. Yeah, yeah, uh, especially the final shot of the film, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Uh, but in all seriousness, Enemy is based on a Portuguese novel by Jose Saramago from 2002 entitled The Double. Here, Canadian director Denis Villeneuve takes the story and casts Jake Gyllenhaal to play dual roles. Adam, a history professor who watches a movie and notices an actor in the background that looks identical to him, and Anthony, the actor. Adam manages to track down Anthony and tries to call his home, where Anthony's wife Helen picks up the phone and is confused that a man that sounds identical to her husband claims to not be him. Eventually, the two men meet up in person and realize they are absolutely identical, including having a scar on the side of their chests. As payback for bringing Anthony's wife into the confusion, he decides to blackmail Adam by taking his girlfriend Mary out for a romantic weekend. The film is ambiguous enough to let viewers decide if Adam and Anthony are twins separated at birth, exact replicas of one another, or the same person going through some sort of an identity crisis. Before we go deeper into the film, I want to welcome Alex Watson. He is a film reviewer originally from the United Kingdom, but but lives in Steeltown, also known as The Hammer, also known as Hamilton. He used to run a blog, Closer to the Edge, but all his reviews now live on Letterboxd, where you can find a link to his profile in the show notes. Welcome, Alex. How are you doing today? Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me on today. It's really great to be here to be discussing Enemy. Yes, I'm uh, I'm very happy to have you here. Uh, we've been, I guess, Twitter mutuals for a little while now, exchanging messages back and forth and, and commenting oh, yes. on each other's posts. So it's nice <laughs> to actually finally talk to you voice to voice, I guess is the way you would put it. I think we can call it that, yes, because uh, we are not physically present with each other. So yes, voice-to-voice sounds a pretty pretty unique way of saying it, so I like that. And I think you're an interesting guest to have on for this movie because you are originally from another country and then you're here in Canada. And while you don't live in Toronto, I imagine that you visited there frequently since you live so close to it. And this is a movie that's set in Toronto, so I'm definitely curious to hear I don't want to call you an outsider, but necessarily, but sort of an outsider perspective of how the city is filmed on screen. 
Yeah, no, it's interesting you say that. Funnily enough, when I first moved to Canada in 2014, I actually lived in uh, Toronto for over four years. So actually, I do have some like idea about how the city was filmed, but still Enemy was kind of my first introduction to all that. So it's really interesting for me to be discussing this and have my kind of views on the city. Yeah, uh, it's it's very interesting because this movie, while it, it originally takes place in Portugal, it's transplanted to Toronto, and Denis Villeneuve is a Quebecois filmmaker. Toronto isn't directly mentioned by name, but you know he doesn't hide the fact that it's Toronto. You see the skyline, you see the CN Tower. He mentions actual streets that are present and actual addresses and all this sort of stuff. So it's a very unique situation where. Toronto plays itself, but also not explicitly enough. It doesn't. It doesn't have to be set in Toronto. He could have disguised it where it was actually, you know, supposed to take place in New York or Chicago or wherever. It's just so fascinating that a Quebecois filmmaker decided to take a Portuguese novel and make it set in Toronto. Yeah, it is. It is an interesting point. Yes, because I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, like you said, Toronto kind of stars as, as itself. One of the things I kind of found fascinating was how he really focused on the kind of the dull and gray buildings, like those kind of buildings you see, like, you know, where, you know, they're just, they're not not beautiful, but they're they're, they're where people live. And at the same point, it's like, I used to live in one of those buildings. You come home at the end of the day, they're not inspiring. You kind of think, oh God, this is where I live. So it's interesting (laughs) that he made such such a big deal of focusing so much on those types of buildings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. And, and often I would say that's a, a pretty common criticism of the city of Toronto where it sort of lacks a bit of an identity where architecture doesn't isn't exactly the star of the city, whereas you think of, of cities like New York or Chicago or Montreal or pretty much every any other major metropolis and the buildings are are so unique and beautiful to look at. And Toronto is very much a, a concrete jungle in the bad sort of way where it just all seems very dated and stuck in time, but also not dated in a good way, not like um, nice brick building. It's all cement or glass and, and nothing, no real interesting, unique designs. Oh, absolutely. Yes. That's because that's one of the things that he did really make use of as Toronto did not look beautiful. It did not look shiny. It kind of, I guess, was supposed to reflect like the boredom and the monotony of like the life of Adam, who we see in the, who we see in the beginning of the movie. So I kind of liked that he did not kind of make Toronto look like an appealing place. He made it look like almost kind of, kind of like hell for this person where he's like stuck in this kind of, like you say, a concrete jungle where there's Mm -hmm. really kind of no escape really you're stuck in these apartments for the rest of your life and this is kind of your life now so i like that he didn't try to make toronto a standout city but at the same point it was such a good location for this film i love that denis villeneuve that he took this city and really kind of just rolled with it rather than taking it to new york or chicago or any of the done-to-death cities my favorite thing about it is that the construction that's in that movie that i was filmed about 10 years ago yeah, it's still there today. It's great. That's my favorite bit about watching Enemy Back. When I first moved to Toronto, they used to joke that the the main uh, seasons in Toronto are winter, spring, fall, <laughs> summer, and construction. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Which is pretty common across most Canadian cities where uh, summertime represents construction season because that's the only time that they can actually do construction work because there's no snow. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> 
But what's, what's Vancouver's excuse then? Why are their roads so crap, even though they get pretty good weather majority of the year? You know what, Rachel? I'm not me that Dakota. All of this Vancouver slander that you've uh, suddenly come on to now. Um, so I'm before we get too off topic, I think we're, <laughs> we're going to go back to our tradition of our A24 questions, which you can listen to every time we have a new guest on the show. We ask the same four questions about their favorite A24 films and their history with the company. So we're going to turn to you, Alex, and ask oh, you these questions. Question number one, which is the biggest and always the most difficult. What are your top three A24 films? Well, my first pick will be The Lighthouse. Because honestly, this is an A24 movie I always find myself coming back to because every single time, it's a new experience. Or I'm looking at the story from a different angle. It's one of those movies which is utterly bizarre. And I think Robert Eggers meant for you to come away from it with more questions than answers. But at the same point, it's just utterly fascinating. So that's kind of my number one pick in terms of my A24 moves would be The Lighthouse would be my first pick. You know, it's funny, Alex, actually. I think I'd heard of that movie when it came out and then I kind of forgot about it. And then you tweeted something and it reminded yeah, me to go it. watch it. And I think you you said to me, you're like, it's kind of weird, but if it's your thing, like you'll really, really like it. But otherwise it might be kind of weird. And then I went yeah. away and I watched it and I absolutely loved it. So yeah, you were probably responsible for getting me to actually watch it. Wow. Like, I, That's great to yeah. hear, Rachel. Fantastic. It's a great movie. Excellent. It is, mm-hmm. it is a great movie. I mean, it's it's one of those where I think it will always divide people, I think, because I think for many people looking for answers and kind of things that are concrete, it's a very tough experience because everything is very kind of ambiguous and mysterious. We don't quite understand, like, are the characters there? Are they in purgatory? Like, for example, and of course, there's a lot of that that ye old English would like, um, what's our timber man want with being a wiki? Kind of <laughs> stuff. So it is, it is a tough movie, but it's so rewarding. And it's one of those films that you'll always read different theories on. You'll always revisit it with a new, with a fresh set of eyes. Uh, my second That's a great pick, pick. Yeah, my second pick is one of the more popular A24 movies is Midsummer. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I don't know, it's, I just, it, it, it's, it's kind of the sim. I like it the same reasons I like The Lighthouse. It's always something new for me. Yeah. So every time I watch it, it's kind of like, I notice something different from the first time, or I look at the characters in in a different way. Like, for example, every time I view the last scene, I kind of wonder what is that face that Danny makes at the end of it? <laughs> like, is she completely broken? Has she found a family? Or is she just literally reveling in the the chaos that's just happening? I always love the fact that it always makes me ask those different questions. And it's just a really, I love, I love Ari Aster's style and I can't wait for his, uh, his movie Disappointments Boulevard with Joaquin Phoenix coming out this year. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for that one. I don't think, I think it's been kind of done. And I remember when it was announced, I just saw, wow, Ari Aster and Joaquin. Yeah. yeah so yes, apparently the, the, the clues about the plot have been kind of sparse, but hopefully, hope, hopefully it's going to be like a bit more of a straightforward experience, but I don't know. I kind of hope Ari Aster brings his trademark zaniness to us because that's one of the things that made Hereditary and Midsummer such a memorable experience. Mm-hmm. I'm and a massive Midsummer fan, so that, oh, that's absolutely. like we should, we should all dress up as the Haga for Halloween one year. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think I'd look very good in the May Queen dress. Sadly, <laughs> my final pick is one that's sadly one of the more forgotten A24 movies, but was just. 
it still honestly insults me that Ethan Hawke was not nominated for an Oscar for this one because mm-hmm. First Reformed was just one hell of a picture. It was just honestly, I think that is Ethan Hawke's finest performance. And it was such a deep movie because it really was about like kind of political, like kind of corruption and a man really losing hold on the strong beliefs that he used to have. And all the while he's kind of reconnecting to this like more anarchy and like more kind of anarchy vibe. And I just honestly love, I just love the direction of Paul Schrader. He's a director who honestly, it was fantastic to see him come back so strong in this movie because for so many years he'd made middling movies, but first reformed to show what a great writer and director Paul Schrader really is. It's nice it's picks. a shame that his follow up the card counter this year wasn't that good. Yeah. Oh really? I heard I heard some so, some people seem to be raving about that one. I think it was mainly mainly because of Oscar Isaac. I feel. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. It's a it's a very weird movie, and it's kind of all over the place, and you can't tell at. T- it's like it's almost like watching a Nicolas Cage movie where you're like, I'm not too sure if this is brilliant or if this is complete shit. <laughs> well, with Nicolas Cage, it's going to be one or the other. That's the unfortunate thing with him. He makes some brilliant movies, but he makes so many movies where it is really just to pay his tax bills. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a great top three, and uh, and I'm really happy that uh, that you oh, like those you. and specifically shouted out First Reform. That's uh, that's one of my favorites as well, and I'm really happy about have, that. I don't know how Ethan Hawke didn't win every award going for that one. It was just a stunning performance. Yeah, it, it was a damn shame. But uh, the second question is, what was your introduction to A24? So what was the first movie that you watched from them? My first introduction to A24 was probably one of the more polarizing A24 movies. Because Spring Spring Breakers was the first A24 movie I really remember watching. Yes. Now, did you watch it when it came out, or was it afterwards? Yes, I watched it in the cinema when it came out. I think I was the only one of my, one of the few ones of my friends who actually watched it? I just remember I was in this. I went to go and see it when I was living in Manchester with, with two of my with two of my friends. And after the, the movie, my friend just went, "What a crap film, mate!" <laughs> it is one of those movies. I think I think it did turn people off because it, I think it was the problem was how it was marketed. Because Spring Breakers, it was marketed as this really cool, sexy crime thriller with girls in bikinis holding you know holding machine guns, but. In reality, it was a lot more art house and a lot more experimental than I think people realized. Yeah, that was that was one that uh, Rachel and I were kind of mixed, slightly divided on uh, of our series. I was one, obviously one of the first movies from the A twenty four canon. Uh, yeah, so that that was one I, I like a bit more than Rachel does. Uh, but either way, I think we we're both kind of middling on. Would you say that you're a fan of it or no? I'm. I guess the problem for me was I've never really been a big fan of Harmony Corrine's work, and mm-hmm. I guess the thing for me was I just found it a bit too random, because it was like there was all those scenes of repeated dialogue, but there was that weird kind of constant clickety click of a gun sound, and I just kind of found the story a little incomprehensible in places. Just I found that they kind of went from being these sorority girls to gun-toting vigilantes in the blink of an eye. I guess you could say I really respected the style of it and i really absolutely love the cinematography in that movie because the neon you know being like in the neon soaked like like florida was absolutely perfect for the story but i guess i wouldn't say i'm a huge fan of it because i just found it was just a bit a bit too confusing for me i felt interesting okay well question three 
what director, dead or alive, would make a good A24 film? Well, my choice is a guy, he's only, so far, he's only made one movie, but it was actually, but it was one hell of a picture, was uh, my choice is Andrew Patterson, who was the director of the movie The Vast of Night. Yes, Dakota and I both really, really love that movie. Yeah, he's, he's a big director if, if ever I've seen one because his style and just the whole, I love how he brought to life like the, the 50s paranoia and also made it kind yeah. of a really kind of tense and almost almost like a horror film towards the end of it because it really got kind of not not bizarre, but it got very, very kind of insane towards the end of the movie. So he would be my pick because he was a fantastic He's just fantastic. I think he would be a great A24 director just based on his style. Great pick. Great, I, great I've choice. watched um, a few interviews with him as well, and he seems like like a really cool guy. And he's very – the way he speaks about filmmaking, it's very eloquent. And I, I really like him. Yeah. I, I don't know him individually, but, like, I like him as a person from what yeah. I've seen. <laughs> like, he seems really cool. And, and yeah, I, I love Vast Night, as I said, and I know Dakota was a big fan of it too. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's – it, it it was real one of those movies that really f- flew under the radar in 2020. I mean, I I only knew about it because I started seeing it on different people's lists at the end of the year, and I thought, okay, mm-hmm. I've got Prime, I'll check this one out. And it ended up being the best decision I made. I think it was my number two film that year, I believe. Great okay. choice, yeah. yeah. That's, I, that's I one put uh, that I'm a on, huge fan of. I put that on my top ten, too. I can't remember what number, but yeah, well, it, it was there. It was second only to Uncut Gems, so oh, there you go, that was yeah. a very tough movie movie for me to leave off my top three, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly you have great taste. Uh, well, and you. then our our last question is, very up in the air and up to interpretation, what makes an A24 film, in your opinion? Well, the first thing that makes an A24 movie is the story should give you more questions than answers. Because I find so mm. many times with an A24 movie, you come away wondering what you have just seen. And often it's a movie that will need repeat viewings to truly understand the message. That's what I feel is the first thing that really makes an A24 movie. Also, I feel you need really great, but kind of very offbeat cinematography. Because I find that all the, like for example, The Lighthouse, I love how they use like the use of black and white in that movie, but also the the different the different way they use the cameras and the framing and just how it really looked almost like another world compared to just being two guys on a lighthouse. I love how they really made it kind of offbeat, so it really distorted your view of what reality truly was. And finally, you need to have a great but very eerie soundtrack because I find that, the, that I found that, for example, for Enemy, for example. One of the key elements to it was just the, the just the music. Well, those are some some great ways to describe the company, and and I absolutely agree with all of them. And I think that's a pretty unique answer because I don't think we've gotten something quite exact like that, have we, Rachel? No, I think that's actually probably the most intelligent answer we've gotten. Oh, wow. Our like mine and Dakota's answers included in that. Like, I actually think you gave probably the most eloquent answer for that one. And oh, like, wow. I like what you said about the lighthouse because I think one of my favorite things about that movie uh just in terms of the behind the scenes is the fact that robert eggers actually used lenses from that time period so when you're talking about it being from another world it kind of was from another world like it was from a completely different time period than we are today so yeah i i I really like your answer that's that's a it's a very it's a very academic answer and i appreciate that thank you very much 
Well, on speaker Robert Eggers, I cannot wait to see The Northman. Yes, it's going to be really good. No, not A24, though, randomly. Not, not A24? A24. Oh, no. no way. It's a Universal, I think it was. It was Universal. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, so we, we'll have to find another reason to talk about it. Yeah. We'll we'll figure it out. It's Alexander Skarsgård. <laughs> if, if only for the fact that he cast Bjork as a Viking witch, which is just perfect. Yeah, that's such a great casting. Perfect. When I heard she was in it, I thought that's amazing. And you know, I've been waiting to her for, waiting for her to accents dance her in the dark. So there you go. <laughs> is this really her first role since Dancer in the Dark? I think, I think she, so. I think she did one movie with her husband like a long time ago, but I can't think of anyone who actually saw it. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, but well. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for answering the questions. That's a, okay. a great addition into our museum of A24 retrospective four questions. I don't know what we're calling this segment. <laughs> but let's uh, let's get into the reason why we're all here, and that's to talk about Enemy, which was directed by Denis Villeneuve. It was the filmmaker's second English-language film after working almost entirely in French-language cinema. It stars, as noted earlier, Jake Gyllenhaal in dual roles, as well as, as well as Sarah Gaydon as Helen, Anthony's wife, who knows he has previously cheated on her before, and now that she is pregnant, worries that he is unfaithful again. Melanie Laurent as Mary, Adam's girlfriend Helen, who seems to just be someone who has a sexual relationship with him, as the two never engage deeper. And Isabel Rosalini, who plays mother, the mom to one of the men, but is ambiguous as to which one. The movie premiered at TIFF on September 8th, 2013, and was released wide on March 14, 2014. A24 acquired the film during TIFF that year after beating out other studios in a high-stakes bidding war, along with two other films that will later feature in our series. This is going to be a spoiler-filled episode, so if you've not watched the film, we suggest doing so first. I think the first thing I want to talk about is raise your hand if you actually understood exactly what was happening. I see no hands, so I assume both of you are as confused as I am. Yeah, I, I was saying to you guys right before we got on, I said, I've seen this I've seen this movie many, many times now. It's it's one of my favorite Villeneuve movies. One of my favorite Gyllenhaal movies as well. Um, yeah, I still don't really get it. I mean, like you can there's tons of fan theories out there, and some of them I think are a little bit far fetched. Others I think are interesting, but in general, I would say yeah, I don't. I wouldn't ever presume that I have a good grasp on what's actually happening in this movie. I think I said to you guys when we when we first met that when I first watched this movie, I went down a very deep rabbit hole <laughs> when I first watched this movie because honestly, on the first viewing, it is frustratingly ambiguous. Yeah, and it's one of those first time experiences that you don't forget, but at the same point, you don't really understand what you've seen, which is honestly where the kind of the genius of the movie comes from because Denis Villeneuve he doesn't want to give you those answers. In the, in the structure of the movie. He wants you to go out there and he wants you to actually figure it out for yourself, which is mm-hmm. honestly what I've been trying to do, I would say, for the past six, seven years. And <laughs> I still don't think I'm anywhere near, to be honest. I think that's almost the design of the movie, though. It's like, I don't think it's a movie that is meant to be answered in a way, like or meant to be figured out. I think it's a movie that's meant to be discussed and meant to be kind of pulled apart. But I don't know if... I mean, I, I did see something, I don't know, I mean, it's IMDb trivia page, but like they said something about um, Denis having the t- cast sign an NDA on what the spider at the end means. And I don't know if that means that he actually told them. I presume that's what it means or if like it's kind of spelt out. But I like that they've never come out and just said, this is what the movie's about, even like a decade on. Like, I'm glad that they haven't done that because 
I think it's just that's part of the fun of the movie. And that's also what makes the movie so good. I think uh, I remember once seeing an interview with Villeneuve. I think the closest he's given to an explanation is he said something like, it's a documentary about my subconscious. I think oh that's God. the closest he's ever, get, he's ever, get, ever gotten to giving us an answer of what Enemy is actually about. And let's be honest, and unless he really wants to spoil the party, I don't think he ever will. Nah, he no, should I, I don't he think should've. he will. Yeah. <laughs> it's, this movie is interesting because it actually almost works, I don't want to say better, but on a very basic level, if you just take what this movie is at surface level and just accept the information that's presented to you, it's probably a lot more uh, straight up enjoyable where you could just be like, wow, there's a mystery. Are these two guys related? Are they the same person? Who knows? At the end of the day, one of them ends up surprisingly dying in a car crash and the other one takes over the other guy's life. That's the end of the story. And so it's very interesting that you can sort of approach this movie with this mindset of what is exactly shown on screen is reality and is truth. But if you so choose to delve into it of, you know, are they twins separated at birth? Are they just clones of each other? Are they the same person going through an identity crisis? What do the spiders mean? What's the situation with the mother character? Who are these women? All this sort of stuff. You can really go, as as you said, Alex, down this rabbit hole of like constantly trying to figure out what one thing means. And I found myself, the more because I'm much like you, I also started doing a whole bunch of reading about what this all means. And as soon as you start reading and breaking down, you're like, okay, this is what this scene means. It's sort of offset and contradicted in a different scene almost altogether. And it kind of brings you back to square one of what does everything mean? Because it's a puzzle that doesn't actually fit together. It's absolutely true. Yes. It's, it's, it's one of those movies that when you actually look over the puzzle pieces you are, you are given, it's just some of them will fit, but some of them you're thinking, okay, well, so I, I still don't get it. Yeah, that's that's mm-hmm. that's kind of the, like we said. That's the genius about this movie is it is it is like a puzzle, but it's probably one you're never going to finish. Which was like me with every single puzzle when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rachel, how did you feel about the contradictory nature of maybe some of the sequences? Because you know, you you look at I'll compare it to something like Fight Club. This is a, a Fight Club is a movie. Everyone, I, I really hope has seen this movie. Both the two of you here, and I mean everyone listening to it, you now know that Edward Norton and and Brad Pitt are the same person. Literally, he just creates a second identity for himself. And then so there's the scenes where Norton and Pitt are together and people literally ignore brad pitt and when you go back and you rewatch the movie you see these things you see this happen that brad pitt is actually ignored in public that they're only actually engaging with edward norton and here you get a uh, sort of a situation where the characters will interact with each other they'll interact with their partners but not at the same time and then there's this extra confusing moment where when uh, the history teacher Adam meets up with Anthony's wife and they don't know each other and he walks away. She calls up Anthony, but he doesn't pick up the phone until Adam is out of the picture. And so it gives you this weird illusion of can they maybe be the same person or not? What's going on there? Uh, but then there's other moments where they interact with each other and like both men are kind of present at the same time. It's a very confusing situation. How did all that play out for you, Rachel, when you were trying to decode the film? Well, first of all, thanks for spoiling Fight Club. Um, appreciate that. Sorry. 
<laughs> I've definitely seen it. Um, I I honestly took it as my, like my whole take on the movie is always that it, it is the same person. That's how I've viewed it as that. I don't know. Like I toss and turn between not toss and turn. I'm not actually tossing and turning um, between who is the original person, like who's the original guy. But I do think it's the same person and it's kind of just a, a it's like a play of, it's like a kind of a, a breakdown. It's like, it's interesting what you said, Alex, about what Denise said um, about the movie being a documentary of his subconscious. Cause to me, it just kind of shows a man who is, who's having a bit of a breakdown. Maybe it's because like I took Anthony as the main guy initially, because I thought, you know, he's got a pregnant wife and that is kind of what is driving him leading into a lot of different insecurities and a lot of um, question marks that he has and also kind of causing him to act out a little bit in terms of, you know, those secret sex clubs and all that kind of stuff and cheating and having an affairs and, and whatnot. Um, I always took it as that, like it was the same guy. It was his subconscious in terms of the contradictions that are played out throughout. It's like more of him kind of battling his own mind I my favorite part of the movie has always been that last bit when uh, when Helen comes home and Adam is in the apartment and I love that kind of flicker in her eyes where she realizes this is the guy that I saw outside this isn't the same dude that I've been kind of running with for the last little while this is the guy that I I saw quote unquote saw outside the uh, outside uh, UT Scarborough and she kind of just runs with it. And to me, I always thought that that was an interesting, like she plays it, Sarah Gadon plays it really, really well, because I always thought it showed maybe a return to form of maybe it's, that's the guy that she knew, like that's the man that she fell in love with originally. And then after she got pregnant, he started kind of becoming somebody a little bit different. So that's how I always played it. And again, I have no idea. I I mean, I don't know if that's right or wrong. I don't think there is a right or wrong on this one though, but yeah, that's how I always kind of reconciled um, the Anthony and Adam situation. What about you, Alex? I kind of subscribe to the same theory as Rachel. I've always been of the opinion that Anthony and Adam, that they are the same person because I know it just, when you look at the movie from the very beginning, it just looks like, I mean, I, I kind of, I want to go back to the point you made Dakota about the scene. Cause I, this scene really changed the movie for me when I watched it the second time, that scene where, she visits him on campus and that scene where she calls Anthony, but then the, the, he answers the phone when Adam has just walked out of the shot. It's just, it, that is, that, that is what made me think that this is, these are two people who are, who are the same and like, and a lot, and, and it's, it's the scenes with Sarah Gadden that really make me believe that they are the same person. It's like, that's the same scene that Rachel was talking about when, you know, Adam goes to visit Anthony's wife in the apartment and it's just the looks that she gives him. I did, and they're just yeah. like that scene where she, you know, she gets into bed and like, and she just kind of stares him down, almost looking to see like, is he, like, is he back with me or is he lying to me again? And also just mm-hmm. for example, that scene on the campus where he visits her, I mean, Sarah, Sarah Gadden's character, she is like visibly emotional when she's talking to him. And when he asks her, how many months are you? And she answers six just I think she seems to recognize that her husband is going through some kind of mental breakdown and that you know the two like and maybe for example he's become two different people 
So he's Adam some days and he's Anthony some some other days. So for me, I believe they are they are the same person, and that it it is about a man who is having an affair with his mistress, but is considering returning to his wife. There's a couple scenes where I think it sort of really highlights that they are the same person. Uh, the first one is with the scene with Isabel Rossellini as his mother, where you are sort of confused as to what son is sort of visiting her. Is it Anthony or is it Adam? Because she starts out this scene by, well, he sort of explains the situation, but then she says, uh, you know, you have a good job, you have a loving wife, but you need to give up this, um, you know, this idea of being a middling actor, a third rate actor, I think is what she calls him. And that sort of like right in that moment, it's like, it's like a really weird, like if you're paying close attention, it's like all of a sudden, like, what the hell, who were you talking about? Mm -hmm. I thought you were talking to the other son. Now you're talking to the one that's the actor. It's kind of throws you off, but it's the concept of he has a good job and he's a failed actor. So he, he acted in a couple things, but then he, you know, left that life behind behind and became a professor instead because he couldn't get steady work as an actor. And then the same thing at the very end, uh, the scene that you're talking about when his wife comes home and they're in bed together and she looks up at him and she says, how was school today? And, you know, we think this is because um, that he's maybe been found out that Adam's been found out that he's replaced Anthony. And he goes, what? And she goes, never mind. But that's that clue that that's the truth, that he really is an actual professor, that they are the same person, that they just had two different jobs throughout their lives. I always go back to the scene with his his mother, because it's actually interesting when you look at the... There's a couple of things in that scene that always make me ask questions, because in the very opening of the movie, it kind of opens with a, like with, I think, presumably maybe Adam getting a voicemail from his mother. And in that voicemail, she talks about how she doesn't like the apartment. But then yet, when he meets up with her later in the movie, she talks about how she does like the apartment. The mother mm-hmm. character is so small, but she does throw you off so much in her brief screen time. And also, the whole thing, one of the other things that's always interesting is blueberries. Because it's yeah. made clear that Anthony really loves organic blueberries. But then when he when the character meets with his mother, he talks he says, I don't like blueberries, mom. So it's really interesting how that those small details really kind of throw you as to which person they're really meeting with. Yeah, that that's the, that's another part where I was talking about uh a little bit ago where sometimes the digger you deep the the deeper you dig the deeper you dig the deeper you dig uh doesn't really reveal an answer it, it suddenly becomes one plus one equals green effectively yes that's 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 a very good way of seeing it i also love like alex you mentioned that, you know the mother role is it is quite small like it is very fleeting in a way um just in terms of screen time but it's such an important role and i love that they got somebody like isabel rossellini to play the mother because she's like, she lends so much weight to the movie, I think in such a small role, like no, I mean, no offense to kind of no name actresses, but I think when you have somebody like her with the, uh, I guess her reputation, but also just kind of the grace that she brings and the, and the levity or not levity, but the um, yeah, weight that she brings to Mm -hmm. to a role. I think she's perfect in like perfectly cast um, in this as, as the mother of, either or both and also one thing i always think about with her is like is she enabling whatever disease yeah. she's trying to play on his wife because she seems because like she talks about like how she knows that she has these 
affairs, but at the same point, she doesn't admonish him. She doesn't discourage him. And it almost seems like she knows that he's repressing these memories and he's in denial about it, but she's not going to do anything to discourage him from it. So I always, always feel how complicit is she in like hiding his hiding, whatever he is doing from his wife. I always took her as, I mean, she's clearly not like the cuddly mother, you know, overly maternal type. That's not, you know, that's not the vibes that she gives off. Rather, she is one, you know, the first thing that we hear in the movie is um, from her is about the apartment, like you said, Alex. And it's like, I think it's a mom that is concerned with her, how her child is doing because she feels like it would reflect poorly on her if he isn't in a nice condo, if he doesn't have a great job, like those kind, if he isn't successful um, and has the perfect marriage and children and all that kind of stuff. And so that I always, that was the, always the takeaway for the mother character for me. Now, I think we should probably touch on the, the spider aspect. So spider show up a few times in this film, which obviously make it very difficult for me to watch uh at the the (laughs) beginning there's this sex club scene where uh a woman brings out a uh tray with a cloche over top of it and uh she's scantily clad in her underwear and she takes off the cloche and the spider comes out and uh, i've been told that uh, she crushes the spider with her high heel uh, because I always cover my eyes at that point. Uh, and then later on, there's a couple shots uh, showing the Toronto skyline and these giant spider creatures that actually kind of look a lot like the creatures that Villeneuve will make the aliens in Arrival. Yeah. These giant oh, creatures wow. with like actually, super long, creepy legs. Yeah, watched. right? They're, they're, they're very identical to them. Uh, and then, of course, there is the final shot of the film after... Uh, Adam has taken over Anthony's house, uh, presumably killing Anthony. Well, Anthony has killed himself with the car crash. Um, and his pregnant wife, he goes into the bedroom where she's at. And all of a sudden, uh, she is a giant spider and she's like cowering into the back corner, looking scared. Also, I've been told that because I cover my eyes for that. Very, <laughs> I think, very I think you and thousands of others did Dakota. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I caught the uh, glimpse of it the first time I watched the movie and like I I still have nightmares of that and so I knew what was coming and made sure to close my eyes nice and early for this rewatch um really outing myself as a big chicken on this podcast um but yeah spiders are such an interesting thing because what do they mean in in the trivia of IMDb it it says that there's been no explanation given but it seems to be analyzed as people that represent Adam slash Anthony's weakness to women, making him less dominant. But then you also sort of look up what do spiders mean in a sort of philo- philosophical sense on the internet, and you'll see things like, spiritually, spiders show us the importance of birth, growth, death, and rebirth, spinning a web of evolution and spiritual transformation. And also things like, the lesson of the spider is maintaining balance between past and future, male and female, spiritual and physical, so you've got all these very interesting concepts of what do spiders mean, and you put that, and you can understand what Villeneuve was wanting to do, but at the same time, what the hell does it all mean? There, oh, yeah, and there's also a dream sequence where a woman, he sees one of these sex workers, but she has the head of a spider, also very terrifying, but it's a nightmare, not an actual uh, manifestation, unlike the other ones, which seem to be real, I suppose. I don't know. But 
Uh, I'm curious to know what the two of you think of what spiders represent. Alex, we'll start with you. Well, I think for me, I kind of go with the more traditional theories that the spiders represent, you know, Anthony or Adam's, you know, fear of marriage and being and being trapped. He views like, you know, for example, because spiders are actually not just in those, not not just, I mean, yes, there's a, at the end, there's a huge spider and the beginning of the movie, there's a spider, and you see like the big spider walking around Toronto. But if you look at it, there's also a lot more references to spiders that maybe people don't pick up on the first viewing. Like, for example, mm-hmm. in the beginning of the movie, we see you know Adam giving one of his numerous, you know, boring, uninspired history lectures. And you notice on the board he's drawn a spider diagram. And mm-hmm. also, like, there's at one point where you see a shot of like the telephone lines, it looks like a spider's web. And at the end, when we see the the car crash, the windshield looks like a spider's web. For me, I feel that that, that spiders represent his kind of his fear of marriage and kind of fear of like having to commit to another person. He sees it not as love. He sees it not as you know a relationship. He sees it as being you know trapped and not being able to to escape. And it's really interesting how in I always go back to kind of the the, the final scene of the movie where you see the huge spider is always the spiders react. It's it's not, it's kind of the two things. First of all, I love the, the spider's reaction where it kind of, it kind of recoils. So for me, that kind of represents, you know, the spider maybe represents his wife and, and her fear that he's going to go out and, and cheat again. Whereas, whereas Adam, his, his expression is more, it's, it's not a fear. It's not a shock. It's a resignation. He's kind of resigned himself to the fact that, you know, he's married, but the cycle's probably going to repeat itself again. So for me, spiders represent women and they represent his fear of relationships. I would take a very similar um, approach to it, but maybe coming from a different angle. Like, I agree that I think that the spider represents his fear of women, um, but I think it's a fear of women kind of engulfing him in maybe the way that his mother did when he was growing up. Um, I take that from like the only kind of fun fact I have about spiders is that the women uh, kind of, it's been a bit mythologized. Now the female spiders have are known to um, eat male spiders and that's either kind of before, during or after mating or copulation as Wikipedia. So brilliantly said, (laughs) I was like, that's a much better word than mating. Um, But it's, it's the idea that, you know, after, cause the the female spiders are a lot bigger than male spiders. um, And so they will eat male spiders, but they won't eat a male spider. If this male is too little, they will only eat them kind of when they're at an appropriate size. I guess it's worth their while to eat them. So I always took it as that because, <laughs> um, you know, the the concept of of uh, Black Widow becoming a name for the femme fatales in a, in a lot of movies, not just Avengers, like even kind of before that, uh, Black Widow has been a name that's been used for women who in kind of... Adam's Family Values. Um, there you go. Yeah, Joan Cusack's character's nickname was the Black Widow. Yeah, and it, it's it's this idea of that they eat their partners, you know, and, and they, eat, um, they eat the men, basically, and the women are a bit more dominant. So that's how I always look at spiders. I remember learning that, I don't know when, maybe high school or something like that. And it always fascinated me because it's like, oh, like the, the female is the more dominant of that species, um, if you can call them that. Yeah, you can call them that. So I, I always kind of took it that way, that it was it was the idea that, you know, when Adam sees the spider, he's just kind of like, 
I agree with Alex about just kind of being resigned to the fact that, yep, like this is, this is just going to eat me just like, just like my, and, and the reason I throw the mother in is just because I feel like, you know, I think he has some mommy issues. I think clearly there's some mommy issues going on in this movie. Um, and I feel like maybe that's where it comes from, where he's his whole life. He's been maybe quote unquote eaten by his mother. And now it's just going to, be his wife is the next one that's going to do it and the whole movie is is kind of his breakdown of trying to escape that and trying to run away from it um but i agree with alex that in the end it's just a resignation of yeah this is just what's going to happen and i've seen some people say that that sigh at the end is is adam sighing in relief um because the the spider is kind of um going back into into the corner kind of uh retreating into the corner i never took it as relief though i always just took it as him just yeah it's just him acknowledging like this is just how it is like there's not much i can do about it and you know baby's coming i have a wife that's it that's that well being being a married man with a child i can tell you that's definitely the case (laughs) (laughs) It's it's nice to hear both of your interpretations of that because for me, with my intense arachnophobia, I try to just ignore it and not think too much about it. Uh, so I appreciate hearing some some intelligent thoughts on the matter. Yeah. Also, the one I'd like I always like to go back to with the spiders is like you got like another scene that you mentioned at the beginning, Dakota, the one where he's in the sex club at the beginning and that the woman brings a spider mm-hmm. out on the tray and then of course she crushes it. It's in that scene, it's, I mean, I can't tell whether it's Adam or whether it's Anthony in that scene because they, they hide it so well. But it's just the way that he looks at the woman doing it, there's a kind of longing look on his face. But almost kind of like he's repulsed by what he's seeing, but yet he's absolutely longing to be that spider. He's longing to be crushed by that woman and to be relieved of marriage and relieved of children and be, to be relieved of just, you know, being trapped in this cycle which he clearly doesn't enjoy so it's always interesting for me to view that first scene even though i know it's 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 not fun to watch a spider get crushed even if it is a cgi spider but still it's it's that longing in his face and the way that he puts his hands on his on his cheeks and just looks horrified yet he utterly longs to be that spider i always find that that kind of callback interesting as well it's like a real look of frustration on him. Like he's like pissed at himself that he's like, why am I like, why do I have these, like you said, longings? Like, why do I want to be that? Like, I know that that's stupid. I know I shouldn't be that guy, but yeah, I always felt like it's kind of like him beating himself up a little mm. bit over it. And I love how that Villeneuve kids cutting back to like the kind of the, the perverted faces of the men around him, where basically yeah. I think that kind of mirrors his disgust. Like I'm actually here with these, these, these complete creep, but <laughs> I can't stop it. That's one thing I always love is how Villeneuve shows the really kind of like perverted men on display who kind of mirror his disgust of what's happening. But at the same point, he's exactly like them because he, he's coming to this place and he's fascinated by this kind of stuff. I mean, Denis is really on his game in this movie. Like, oh. I, I feel like this is, he's done obviously really great movies since. And, but this is kind of that crux in his career where he goes from, the small Canadian indies. And this is a Canadian film too, like telefilm, telefilm Canada is a big producer on it. So it's like, it's him going from this into now. And then eventually the, the Sicarios and prisoners and, and all that kind of stuff. So I, I, but he's so on his game in this one. Like we, we already talked about the cell phone scene when, uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Helen calls, calls Anthony. And it's like, that is brilliant of just him 
just cutting away and it's very natural like it's like it does take in that amount of time to get at, you know what i mean like so i feel like mm-hmm. yeah denis is just he's really on one in this in this movie well i love yeah he, he's definitely working at a higher level yeah. of of something the likes of like what david cronenberg was was doing mm-hmm. back in the the 70s 80s and 90s as well where really playing with with horror and psychology and what does it all mean while sort of dissecting the human mind at the same time and, and making something truly uh, unique and thrilling, which very few filmmakers are able to, <laughs> no pun intended, weave so many different uh, stories and styles together to make something so cohesive and unique and something that you just want to understand. Because at the end of this movie, if you're not going like, okay, what does this mean? Yeah. I need to understand what does this mean? Then I feel like the movie just kind of went over your head completely because if this doesn't elicit that sort of reaction, you missed everything. Yeah. One Cronenberg. Thing. That's a, that's a great, um, that's a great comparison. Cronenberg back in the seventies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One thing I do love about Denis Villeneuve is every single one of his movies makes you ask a different question and it's a whole mm-hmm. new experience. Like, every single time because if you look at his filmography he's gone from making these kind of canadian indie movies like uh in cindy's which was such an incredible movie i mean i mm-hmm. watched it recently even for his first couple of movies he was really just his directorial style was just something you'd never seen before but i mean the, even though he's going towards like the bigger budget movies like arrival and dune and you know sicario and all these kind of things he never loses his eye for a good story and he always makes you ask a different question after every single movie. That's what I love about his style. And just like we say, he is probably on one of his, this is probably him on top form here because he really takes these kind of questions that the audience have and he kind of toys with you throughout it. And that's just a sign of a great filmmaker that he can make you have a different experience every single time. And he uses Toronto. Like we, we talked about it a little bit at the beginning, but he uses Toronto just brilliantly in this. Like, you know, you mentioned the the different spider references and, and, you know, having the streetcar cables above being one of the first shots of the city that you see. I always I I know the CN Tower is obviously the more iconic um, visual of Toronto. But for me, it was always the streetcar cables. And I'm so glad that so many kind of Canadian and local artists use them because I feel like it's there's it's so old fashioned, but yet it's there and it's like in the middle of, you know some like King street West still uses um, the streetcar cables. And it's like, I, I always love that aspect of Toronto. Cause I think it's probably the most character that it's in the, the fabric of the city. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's, I think it's one of those, it's like, you know, as the kids would say, if you know, you know, like if you're from Toronto, it's, <laughs> it's incredibly recognizable. And the second you see it, you go, Oh yeah, that's Toronto. Like, and it's, it's hard to, um, I think if you're going to do a movie about Toronto, which doesn't happen very often, but I think if you do, you have to include um, the streetcar cables. And like he uses, it's not even just Toronto. Mm. Like he goes to Mississauga and uses the um, the Marilyn Monroe towers. Yeah, that's as well. Mm-hmm. I, I know, and I that's know, a stunning shot. Like, and yeah. it's so, and it's used perfect, like at the perfect point in the movie where it's just like windy and twisty, and it's it's a very unique building um, or two buildings. And I mean, they're just residential buildings. That's all they are, but yeah, um, it, it's, it's a, like, it's a great use of the city and it's a great use of, um, of Denis kind of, or it's not great. It's a great example of Denis really taking a location and, 
and bringing it to life and not just using it as a backdrop. Like he actually takes the city and uses the city really well. One thing I always find fascinating with just the opening shots of the movie is the color that they use because the yeah. movie kind of opens with this really kind of yellowish tint to it. And when you, when you, when you kind of superimpose this against the, the gray buildings of Mississauga and then the, the shots of him, him teaching on campus, it really shows the, the monotony of his life and just how like he is in this kind of grimy kind of uninspiring, like, like location. And I just love the way that they use that color throughout. Cause it really, as the movie goes on, that color becomes more and more kind of like represent representative of like the insanity that's going on. But at the very end of the movie, the, the, the yellow tint is gone and the, and it's more kind of a, more kind of a, more more of a clear lens so I, li- I like to think that maybe kind of De- Villeneuve is like showing like this is his conscience finally cleared whereas before it was dirtied with a yellow tint at the end of the movie his conscience is clear that's one thing I find absolutely fascinating that's a that's a great reading of that yeah. and one that I never really considered same I feel like Villeneuve really likes that yellow tint because Sicario is also kind of like that Blade Runner uh, Blade Runner has yeah. sequences in this yellow tint Dune basically the whole thing is this brownish yellowish <laughs> tint so that's that's a very interesting thing uh, now I think the last sort of thing I want to talk about before we we move on is the actual acting performances we didn't we didn't really touch on that at all Jake Gyllenhaal plays these dual roles. And he does so, so spectacularly in a way that you can, from scene to scene, if you were to like, you know, take the sound off or something, you would know which character he's playing. He does such a great job the way that Adam, the history professor, walks. He has a bit of a slouch to him. He sort of drags his feet. Whereas when he's Anthony, he has much more of a confidence, a sex appeal to him that we would expect from someone like Jake Gyllenhaal. And then when he's like interacting with the with the wife and the girlfriend characters and both as their partners and when the reversal happens, he does such a great job. And, and the women too do a great job at knowing and not knowing who they're interacting with. That's just so fascinating. So the fact that, that Hall with these two roles and then Melanie Laurent and Sarah Gaton, uh, the two of them together work so well as the partners for the different Hall characters. I just want to know sort of your thoughts on, on all the performance in this film. Rachel, I'll start with you. Um, I, yeah, Hall is amazing. I love Jake Gyllenhaal. I'm a big, big fan of his. Like he's one of those actors that if I hear he's in a movie, I'm there. I'm watching it, even though some of his are, you know, the guilty wasn't great. Let's be completely honest, but I was really excited to watch it because Jake Gyllenhaal's in it and he will always be amazing in a movie, even if the movie itself isn't excellent um, or even good for that matter. Uh, my, the, the scene that I love, like hundred percent agree with everything that you said, Dakota, about the differences between Adam and Anthony. But the one scene that I love the most is, um, when they're looking at the hands, when he was like, I think it's Anthony. He goes like, show me your hands. And then the way that the two hands are shot, like I do believe it's, it's just kind of Joan Hall both. And they just cut it together. And it's like, you know, Anthony's hands are really solid and they're really like firm. And they're that. And then Adams are kind of slightly shaky and he raises them up really slowly. And it's like to be able to see insecurity in a pair of hands and seeing the contrast to me, I like. I think just as Denis was on one in this one, I think that Jake Gyllenhaal, same thing. Like, I think he was giving such a great, great performance in this. Um, he always does, to be fair. But like, 
yeah, I this is one of my favorite um, performances from him, definitely. It's a total mystery for me how Jake Gyllenhaal has not won at least one Oscar already. I mean, I mean, he's only I, been nominated for one though. Yeah, like, that's back, insane. Back Mountain back in two thousand six, yeah. I think it was. Which it, it's it, it was a good performance, but it's nowhere near his best. I mean, you look at the performances yeah. he's given: Nightcrawler, Southpaw, oh, Nightcrawler. Yeah, yeah, just he, he's just one of the Donnie Darko, one of his very first yeah. performances. He's just the thing I love about Jake Gyllenhaal is he's one of the only actors on the planet who can take these kind of very morally complex characters and make them so enjoyable to watch. And in this movie, he has to deal with two effectively like opposite personas, but somehow he makes them both just so engaging. Because I like, I, like, I like how you said before, Dakota, about how like Anthony has this sex appeal to him, whereas like Adam, he's very neurotic. He wears like kind of boring, he wears boring clothes. His beard is unkempt. He drives a beaten up old Volvo. Whereas like Anthony, he drives a motorcycle, he wears expensive clothes, he's perfectly groomed, he's so direct, and he's almost kind of an arrogant bully in some scenes as well, because I love the scene between, the scene I love the most is that scene between him and Sarah Gadden, where she kind of asks him, are you seeing her again? And just mm. his reaction to that one as, as Anthony is just unbelievable, where he just basically explodes. And you realize that obviously that this is kind of, him realizing he's been caught and he's aware that his wife is onto him, but his, his reaction rather than denial is one of anger because he realizes, he realizes that, you know, his, his, his affair is no longer secret. So that is probably my favorite scene in the movie just because of, just because of Gyllenhaal's reaction, because he's one of the few guys who can really make a, an angry reaction seem almost terrifying, to be honest. And yes, I think yeah. for me, he's excellent twice in this movie. So I, I still can't believe that he did not win at least one one award for this movie. Yeah, it's pretty shocking for sure. Uh, I really like the scene when he's Anthony and he's prepping on what he's going to say to Adam oh, when he meets great. him. So he's yeah. in the bathroom and he's repeating over and over again, did you fuck my wife? Did you fuck my wife? And then he like slaps the mirror he's yelling at it's like getting real intense and scary and then all of a sudden he like he goes yeah that's it it's just like this actorly thing of like i nailed it that's how the line reading goes and then we see it in action when he meets up with him he does it in the exact same way it's suddenly terrifying yeah. again because you see this rage that he has but you also know he's faking this because he has something in mind which we later see of the plan that he's going to take out uh, Mary on this romantic weekend and all this sort of things, blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, he does such a great job of <laughs> being angry, pretending to be angry, pretending that he's pretending to be angry and like all these like different layers to it. And also I feel, I feel Sarah Gadden deserves like a huge amount of credit as well, because as, as Helen, I love the fact that she's able to take this character who is like, so obviously so, so vulnerable and so like mistrustful of, you know, the man that she thinks is her husband, but yet she adds an extra layer to her that most actresses probably would not have done. Like I love the scene when she's kind of visiting him on the campus and she's like visibly emotional because she realizes that yes, this man is probably her husband, but she's dealing with a person who she doesn't even recognize. And honestly, I feel that she deserves so much of the credit for this movie as well, because she absolutely nails the, every scene she has with Gyllenhaal because it's just, not just an emotional experience it's almost kind of like i love the fact that she makes it almost kind of us question what is what exactly is their marriage 
because there's because like you mentioned before, there's that scene right at the end where she says, "Did you have a good day at school today?" And it always makes you question what exactly does she know about this about you know Adam or Anthony? So that's that I think she deserved a big amount of credit as well. She's mm-hmm. such a massively underrated actor. I think I don't. You know, I, I don't, and I don't buy it. So it's because she's from Canada or anything like that. Because we see, like Rachel McAdams, for example, like has done really, really well. But I always thought she's someone who pops up in a ton of movies, and she's always excellent. She's always so good. Like I was thinking of her in uh, Cosmopolis. Like you mentioned, David Cronenberg earlier, um, Dakota, and it's like she's excellent in that, and a completely different character than what she plays in Enemy. And yeah, I've always thought she's very, very underrated and. I mean, I don't know why she never kind of hit it big in Hollywood. Maybe it was her kind of her own decision to to stay within Canada. But yeah, I've always thought she deserves a lot bigger opportunities than she's been given. I think she's on the the come up. Um, you know, she does do a lot of smaller films yeah. and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, she she's an interesting one. She always reminds me of the fact that I had an interview lined up with her and. <laughs> her team pulled back on that. <laughs> so I'm always a little better because I, I well, did she, want to talk She to walked her. past me at TIFF one year, which was pretty cool. She's very That's good cool. looking up close, i got to say. <laughs> I don't doubt that. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I think that sort of concludes our main discussion of this film. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to have some fun with some games. This is Classic Movies Live, the pre-recorded show where we talk about movies that just came out. I'm your host, Jeff, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Pierre. Pierre, what movie are we talking about today? Jeff, what are you talking about? We're recording an ad. Oh, is this an ad for Kicking It With Kendrick, the show where every week we bring on a different expert to talk about the filmography of Anna Kendrick? No, no, this is an ad for Losing It Over Leo, the show where we chronologically go through... Leonardo DiCaprio's career from childhood to his Oscars. Are you entirely certain this isn't an ad for CML Classics, episodes of Classic Movies Live that we recorded two years ago? Well, I guess it's an ad for all four at this point. Well, you know what? That just works out, because you can find all four of those over on the Heatwave Radio channel on Spotify. Nice. I also want to give a shout out to Cinesance, the new streaming service that offers fantastic films direct from France that don't often get distribution in North America. The site curates its selection of great offerings, including classics, comedy, drama, family, and more, along with having a dedicated selection of films of Gerard Depardieu, Benoit Poulevard, and more. You can get a free 15-day trial of the service with subscriptions starting at under $8 a month Canadian. I'll be highlighting films seen on the platform from time to time here. I'd like to thank Cinesance for coming on board as a partner. Now, let's have some fun with our two games we like to play, first of which is a double bill. Now, the only uh, criteria is this, is you have to come up with a double bill movie to pair with Enemy, and it cannot be another A24 film. We have not discussed this beforehand, so I'm really curious to hear what everyone has to say. Alex, as our guest, I wanna, I want you to go first. What movie do you want to pair with Enemy as your double bill feature? My, I think the perfect movie to pair with Enemy would actually be another Jake Gyllenhaal movie, which was his movie Nightcrawler. Because mm. I feel that together, it's a perfect pair because both of them are A, very dark movies, and B, both of them kind of go explore like the issues of morality. 
like for example what is the cost of wanting you know what your heart really desires and how far are you willing to go to kind of get that and i think if you play these back to back it would be kind of an interesting kind of comparison together because you'll have jake gyllenhaal a in the first movie playing two like opposite opposite characters then you take a character like lou bloom who was in nightcrawler who let's be honest he was like he's almost like an extraterrestrial he kind of comes mm-hmm. across like a an alien life form who's kind of like stud like you know getting all of his knowledge from the conversations that he studied with humans and he's like pretty much a character who defines defines being morally ambiguous so I think back to back, Enemy and Nightcrawler would be a perfect double bill. Nightcrawler, that's a great choice. Nightcrawler is one of my favorite, like all time favorite movies. Oh, I love that one. I just, it's I just, one of. Sorry, go on. No, I was going to say I remember the first time I watched it, and I think for like weeks afterwards, I was so disturbed by it. Like I just I couldn't shake the movie for for ages, and I kept thinking about it. And I it took me a while actually to watch it again. Um, but I, yeah, excellent pick. I, I love, I love Nightcrawler and he is very like, I think he's like a werewolf in that. That's what I always thought of him, like a lone, lone wolf kind of thing. Interesting, interesting fact, Mm -hmm. actually, apparently before they actually made the movie, uh, Dan Gilroy actually considered uh, naming, uh, naming it Coyote. Cause he kind of thought like Lewis is Coyote type character who kind of like, you know, he he observes like his prey from a distance. And then kind of like his whole like, and it, when you look at his interactions with other people, like his general behavior, yeah, he is kind of like a coyote. Yeah. And Jake Gyllenhaal, for as good looking as he is, he always tries to choose roles that just make him look the, the creepiest man that's ever existed. The only, the he always only, does that. The only part of his I've ever had a problem with was when he was in that movie, Oksha. Yeah, I, I agree well, with that. I didn't, well, I didn't like him in the. He kind of came across as a, I mean, his his character just kind of seemed like a cross between Doctor Robotnik and Richard Simmons. Very, it was and that bizarre. movie in general. I wasn't a huge fan of, but yeah. All right, Rachel, what is your pick? Um, I went with American Psycho, Ooh. and the reason for that one, it shot in Toronto as well, uh, which I always appreciate a movie that shot in Toronto. I think it's meant to be set in New York though, so because it's the kind of the Wall Street Bros type thing. But it's also just one of those psychological mysteries that you unpack it. And at the end, you have the same questions of what was real, what wasn't real, what was in his head, what wasn't in his head. Um, The ending of American Psycho for me is one of the kind of the funniest things in the world. Like I love when he shoots up, like he fires a gun at a car and the car just blows up after one shot. And he looks at the gun like, the hell did I just do? Like, how did that happen? And I always love that because it's, it's for a movie that was seemingly set in a very horrific reality there was a lot of um a lot of kind of otherworldliness to it as well like a lot of things that just didn't make sense like things that wouldn't take place in actual reality and i think it's a nice contrast to enemy where enemy is such a a quiet movie it's a very introspective movie and american psycho is on the other end of the spectrum it's it's loud, it's brash, it's incredibly violent. Um, yeah, and it, that is also one of my favorite movies of all time. So I don't know what that says about me. But yeah, American Psycho is the one that, once I came up with it, I was very pleased with myself. I was like, that's, that's a good one. That's a good uh, choice to put it with. Well, the only drawback about American Psycho right. is you might want to listen to some Phil Collins after it. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's very true. But he has like a special place in my heart now because of that movie. Yeah, I think I think yeah, he he's he's one of those artists who people complain about, but I think 
yeah, he does have a special pain in my heart because of that movie as well, because it takes a lot of balls to kind of make Phil Collins look cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was your choice, Dakota? So I uh, I couldn't decide if I want to go populist or bougie, and at uh, Rachel's insistence, I am going to go highbrow. <laughs> and so my double bill pairing is Ingmar Bergman's 1966 film Persona. Ooh, wow, that's, that's actually the, a good pick, Dakota. <laughs> amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> Now, uh, I save your sarcastic comments to afterwards, <laughs> but the, the film is about a nurse who has to take care of a mute actress, and as the nurse bears herself to the actress, the power dynamic slowly changes until eventually the two faces literally overlap, and the actress speaks and leaves the care home, leaving behind the nurse, revealing that the two people are actually one, and also, as an added little bonus thing, a spider is even featured prominently in the introduction to the movie mm-hmm. to make even more comparisons. Oh Can God. I ask what was your what was your populist choice? It would have been Fight Club. Oh yeah, I thought someone would. I'll be honest, I thought someone would choose Memento because that seems like a very obvious like kind of, and it's a good pairing with it as well. I remember seeing Persona when I was in my first year of university, and it, it's one of those movies that I think I wrote it off when I first watched it because, let's be honest. First time Bergman is always very, very hard. But yes. now that you say it, I mean, I've revisited that movie in, in years to come along with a few other Bergman movies. That is actually a pretty good choice, Dakota, because yes, like you say, it really does delve into the issues of identity. And that one really is a movie where you do question what you have seen. And like, for example, is yeah. Liv Ullman's and the other person's character the the same the same person. So yeah, I think in terms of being a very highbrow pick, yes, I firmly agree <laughs> with you on that one because I do have a soft spot for Bergman. I'll be honest, <laughs> I've good, been I'm meaning glad. I've been meaning to watch Bergman's movie because he had a I think it was a documentary came out Bergman Island. Um and after I saw that I've been meaning to kind of watch his films again. So fair enough. Fair play to you. That's a good choice. Yeah. Well, it's bougie, but you, it's yeah. a good choice. Yeah. I think Thank you, One thank of the you. few times I think I've really been starstruck at TIFF was when I when I got to see Liv Ullman at the premiere of uh, Miss oh, Julie wow. because she's an icon, isn't she? And like, yeah, she's definitely. like she was mm-hmm. and in my, she's Ingmar Bergman's muse. So that's one of the very few times I've really been like, oh my god, I'm actually looking at a legend here. Don't know what to do with yourself. I did you say hi? <laughs> well, I was at a very great distance, so I don't think she oh, would okay. really <laughs> care what I was thinking, to be honest. But well, so. It was it was pretty cool nonetheless. I was more excited about seeing Jessica Chastain, to be honest. There you go. Very true. Very fair as well for that. Um, and I think if I had a third pick, it would have been something like The Prestige. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's a good choice, okay. That's a good choice too. Speaking of Nolan. I mean, Nolan, uh, Nolan yeah. kind of like, Nolan could have directed this movie as well. And I think that it wouldn't have been the same, obviously, but... This like is the type of movie I feel like he would have been attracted to, or the type of book I guess. Yeah, that's very true. He would have been attracted to. Yeah, they're they're very similar directors in sort of the themes that they like to discuss in their films, despite the fact that they go about them in very different ways. Mm -hmm. One other thing, I think the thing that they kind of combine it's to a point that Alex made a bit earlier about, um, you know, Denis making these kind of smaller movies, but and now going into the big budget, I always felt like him and Nolan are really good at making really big movies, but they seem, they feel small in a way. Like they feel like indie movies, but they just have a massive budget. That's all. 
All right, so let's go to the second portion of our game, and that's our Would You Rather section. So, Alex, lead us off with your Would You Rather question. Okay, this one I had to think quite a lot about because it is uh, it is a big it is a big question. Would you rather? My Would You Rather question that I have gone with is: Would you rather the enemy had a more conclusive ending, or would you keep Ooh. the ending as it is? I'd keep it Ooh. as it is. I like that question. I'd keep it as it is, though. Definitely. That's tricky because I don't think the movie would have been hampered if there was maybe a bit more clarity over, you know, pick any one of the the numerous subjects that this movie really sort of delves into. Uh, if there was a bit more clarity on on some of it, I think that would have been interesting. But, you know, we, we so often complain about movies – the royal we, not just any of us in particular, um, we we as film lovers, that sometimes we wish that there was a bit more ambiguity in movies. And so it's nice that there's a movie where there is a ton of ambiguity and it doesn't really hinder the enjoyment of the movie. Because sometimes when movies go too ambiguous, you just go, it seems like the writer and director had no idea what they were trying to tell and that's why it's left open-ended because they couldn't come up with a real ending sort of thing. But in this... It's all there. It's just up to the audience to decipher it. So, so it's a tricky. It's a very tricky question. Where, honestly, I'm I'm very happy with the way it is. But I think if we did get a version, maybe Christopher Nolan's version <laughs> of this movie would probably have a bit more of a concise ending. I don't think it would have ruined the movie. I'd like to say I don't think if Nolan did it, it would not be a concise ending. We would be working on like five different timelines and all this nonsense and things would be going backwards and things like that. I do not think that it would be Honestly, any more clear I've, than it is. I've not even bothered watching Tenant because I can get from what I can gather, it's just really a movie where I think I know he loves to kind of keep his audience on their toes and kind of play with the whole idea of like space and time, but people said he went a little too far with this one. It was just kind of People, I think my my brother went to go and see it, and the advice he gave me was just ignore everything that's happening and focus on the visuals. I will, I will put <laughs> my hands up and say I really like Tenant. I'm a big fan of Tenant. I think it's a cool movie. It is very Nolan, though. It's like the most Nolan of the Nolan. Movies. I just can't wait for Oppenheimer because, first of all, what a cast for that yeah, movie, and that's like a perfect subject for Christopher Nolan to kind of get back into, like these, okay. like kind of more like more kind of linear movies that we we, used to, we sometimes see him make. <laughs> or will it be? Who knows? Oh, I know. Um, Maybe it's about Oppenheimer, like not deadening yeah. in an alternate reality. Who knows? But I just like the fact he cast, he always cast Killian Murphy in something. Because so <sighs> he's the best. Thing. Um, Alex, what would, how would you answer your own would you rather question? Honestly, I would probably keep the ending the way that it was. Because like you mm-hmm. guys said, I like that there is that ambiguity there. Because I think if you had a conclusive ending where he got some kind of comeuppance or like his wife left him or like, for example, it turns out that, you know, there was two Antonys, I think it would it would really spoil like the the enjoyment of it, because then you wouldn't be able to go go and read these theories and like have discussions about the movie because all of the information is right there in front of you. Whereas the way that Villeneuve ended this movie, it's just I, I almost think it was. It was such a bold way to end it, to end it on such like a inconclusive fashion where you're really questioning like what is the spider? So yes, I I think I would keep the ending the same way. Awesome. Okay. Uh, Rachel, what about you? What's your would you rather question? My would you rather? Okay. So kind of going off of um, what I was talking about, about the female spiders eating their partners. 
my would you rather is not nearly as clever as Alex's. Um, it is, would you rather be eaten by a spider after mating? So assuming you are a spider yourself or as a human be killed by black widow as played by Scarlett Johansson before mating. So basically I'm saying, would you like to get laid as a spider or meet Scarlett Johansson before you die? Oh, wow. That is, an, that is a tough one, Rachel. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Do I choose which version of death do I choose? It's so exactly compelling. you're dying either way, so it depends on how do you want to get out. I'm going to let Dakota go first in this one because I'm, I'm I need to think about trust this. me. This is one of our ones that aren't as dark. We've had darker <laughs> questions. I would say probably. I guess I would probably get choose to get killed by Scarlett Johansson because honestly getting killed after mating kind of sucks to be honest whereas like at least before <laughs> get to see Scarlett Johansson <laughs> Dakota ah uh, yes the age-old question would you rather mate than die or never mate at all exactly well which answer do you think I'm gonna I think you're gonna go Scarlett just because you have this really weird thing about spiders even though you seem to like spider-man it, it, it is not but. it is not weird well, no okay? spiders a lot spider-man. of people have arachnophobia <laughs> There was in the first Spider-Man. Yes, the very, there very was first. one, but he was a very small spider, so I'm sure that it's was probably true. probably okay. That's true. I mean, to be fair, I'd probably go out with having Scarlett Johansson killing me because it'd be cool to meet her. Why not? It'd be, it'd be neat. Yeah, I, I, it would make a great story. Yeah, like, I would, but you'd be dead. Like, who would you tell it to? Well, I would hope <laughs> she also brings Florence Pugh along with her as well. So, yeah. oh, I do love her. I love her greatly. Yeah. Yes, please. Um, Dakota, what's your would you rather? Okay. Um, if you had a doppelganger, would you rather meet them or not? Alex? Oh, I, I would have to choose not because the idea of even meeting myself would be soft pudding, to be honest. Because I, th- I just think, <laughs> oh my God, do I really sound like that? <laughs> yeah, because I don't know it's, it's one of those things about I me. Mean, you always think, what would it be like to meet myself? But I, I think I'd probably meet my doppelganger and think, oh my God, I'm so annoying. <laughs> um rachel i don't know i always thought it'd be really cool to have a twin <laughs> i always thought it'd be really neat um would i want to meet my doppelganger though because it would be really weird i'm gonna say yes just because i feel like you could get up to like a lot of cool fun stuff as like a two identical pairings like doppelganger isn't like exactly identical right like not kind of look yeah like I'm going to I'm going to say yes then cuz I feel like you could come up you could get away with a lot of stuff and I won't go any further. Like murder? I just feel like it would be fun, you know. I think <laughs> it would be interesting to have a life where somebody else looks exactly like you and you can presumably you have the same DNA as well. Like I think that that would be interesting. It'd be very it'd be very handy if you needed the kidney, that's for damn sure. I'm just saying. Yeah. I'm just saying. <laughs> but I will not say it explicitly because I'm not going to incriminate myself in case one day I do meet my doppelganger. So we're going to leave that. Mm-hmm. Just leave that. Mm-hmm. How about you, Dakota? Would you meet your doppelganger? Well, at first, my my instinct was uh, there's no way in hell I, I'm messing with that sort of thing. Like that just sounds like a recipe for disaster. But then I thought about it. I was like, a movie I really love, another Toronto set movie, is Scott Pilgrim. And at the very end, <laughs> he meets. Uh, Nega Scott, which is a version of himself, <laughs> and they end up having a great conversation, and they're going to meet up for brunch the next week. And so I think, 
hey, you know, all the stuff that my wife has no interest in doing with me, I'd have a really good partner that has the exact same interests as me. You just, that sounds kind of sad. You just want a friend. Like, that's what it kind of sounds like, Dakota. Basically, <laughs> yes. I just want a friend. <laughs> I guess what... Just- Thank you for outing me, Rachel. <laughs> I guess one thing that would be interesting about my doppelganger is like, can my wife tell the difference between me and the doppelganger? That's that would be the main kind of thing. Like, if if she if she can't, this guy can this guy can't come back because that's kind of scary. <laughs> you have you seen Swan Song? The new no, it's, it's on my list because I love Mahershal Ali. He's just he's. he's- I highly recommend bumping know, it up your list. Just only, for that, what you just said there reminded me of that. I know. I've, so, I've yeah. only I've only just I've only just finished seeing the the tragedy of the tragedy of Macbeth. So that's when that's mm. next on my list. Amazing. All right. Well, I think that sort of concludes our conversation on Enemy. Alex, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. Where can people follow you and find your work? Oh, on I'm on on Letterbox. I my username is. AW4 Film Squawk. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Flowering Snows. Well, I will link to both of that in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. I thought I hope you had uh, as much fun as oh we my, did. Guys, thank you so much for having me on this. This has been a really, a really great time just talking about one of my favorite movies. I really, really thank you so much for having me on. I really hope to be here again someday. Definitely. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, we can definitely arrange that. Uh, Rachel, where can listeners find more of your work too? I go to rachelkh.com and I am on Instagram and Twitter underscore rachelkh. I think my letterbox is also rachelkh, no underscore though. I could be wrong about that. Um, In terms of what I have up, I mean, Alex just mentioned Tragedy at Macbeth and that came out on Apple TV Plus, I think just this past weekend. Yeah, it's still Friday. Yeah, so um, my review for that is up on Exclaim, and Sundance is coming up. Probably by the time this episode goes out, um, Sundance will have been happening. So I am covering that for a few different outlets, so you can um, check out Sundance Fun from virtually, because we're not allowed in Utah. (laughs) Okay, well, uh, for spoilers behind the scenes we do plan on doing an episode about the tragedy of Macbeth coming up so that's going to be uh one that people should look out for but you can follow the show on instagram twitter and facebook at contrazoom pod if you have seen enemy distributed by a24 let us know your thoughts send an email to contrazoompod at gmail.com thank you to eric and kevin smale for the theme music and to stephanie Pryor for the logo design if you like to listen to podcasts on youtube we do post all episodes there too thanks for checking us out mm-hmm.